Hey everybody, how's it going? My name's Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. As I am recording this, we are about to enter the final week of December, so if that's when you're listening, I hope you're having a fine festive seasonal holiday of your choice. I know this can be a stressful time of year for a lot of people, and this has been, I don't think it is an overstatement to say, a particularly stressful year. So, uh, you know, give yourself permission to go easy on yourself. If you don't feel up to jingling all the way this year, maybe just jingle part of the way. Just a little of the way. Or hell, if you don't feel like it, you don't need to jingle any of the way. You know, I've never actually seen the movie Jingle All the Way. I do like watching terrible Christmas movies, so I feel like I probably should. But I don't think it's going to be able to live up to a Christmas mermaid. Besides, I'm just not sure there's enough meat on the plot of the song Jingling Baby by LL Cool J for them to get a full feature-length film out of it. Although part of me is curious if at any point Arnold grabs the microphone as though his booty don't stink. Come on, Arnold. We know your booty stinks. Everybody's does. That's where poo comes from. Anyway, before we get into this week's comic book, I do just want to give a warning up top. This comic book deals with some pretty heavy issues. So the synopsis and the discussion that follows it are at least going to touch on the subjects of suicidal ideation, addiction, trauma, and domestic abuse. I hope we found the right balance of taking those subjects seriously without necessarily taking the comic book that brought those subjects up too seriously. But if you're in a place right now where you'd rather avoid those subjects, I totally understand. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui and Mark Paglia, and it is part two of the synopsis rhyme started last week. So for part one, go listen to last week's episode. And now, How Mephisto Stole Christmas, part two. Mephisto checked in on his nefarious scheme to make a non-holiday for our hapless non-team. Their presents were ruined, spilled out from their bags, torn of all ribbons and boxes and tags. Yet in the sanctum he saw them not bothered the least. They even sat down for a yuletide bean feast. The devilish one, with his scrying spell cast, sat wondering about how this had come to pass. He realized as defenders caroled in a chorus, the best Christmas gift was not seeing Jack Norris. Seeing the joy our heroes felt keeping that jerk Jack away, the six-fingered hand grew two fingers that day. He flew straight up from hell, grabbed the elf with a gun, and celebrated with defenders, including sort of his son. Mephisto served them all beans straight out from the can, which he opened with his now eight-fingered hand and all the gifts Mephisto restored with a spell, for the deviled-fingered hand is kind of God as well. And even little Namor Luhu, with his abs in a flex, observed, Atlantean gods bless us all! Imperious Rex! We leave this scene of devil and bean-filled Christmas to listen to Hub 
give a Yuletide synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin and Mark. Defenders, number 110, August 1982. Hunger. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Mike Esposito, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Devil Slayer. Doctor Strange a little bit. And Nighthawk, maybe. Previously in the Defenders. There was a lot of complicated retconning of Valkyrie's body-swapping, apparent death, resurrection, and often self-contradictory origin. But all that got wrapped up in the last issue, and has little or no impact on this story. Hooray! In slightly more relevant Defenders news, an undetermined but seemingly brief amount of comic book time ago, billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, unnecessarily sacrificed his life to help stop a jingoistic former government agent with an apparent Roman centurion fetish from murdering Russia. Bummer! A short while later, Doctor Strange was tooling around in some weirdo dimension and bumped into a masked stranger in a familiar-looking bird-themed costume who claimed to be Nighthawk. But that only impacts this story a tiny bit, if at all. More importantly, an indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the Defenders befriended purported hero and confirmed bad decision factory, Eric Simon Payne, aka Devil Slayer. Devil Slayer was an unhappily divorced Vietnam veteran and a recovering alcoholic. Once he had gotten sober, he had briefly worked as a mafia hitman, which he justified to himself with the spurious rationale that he was only killing bad people. Then he accidentally murdered the family of a reporter. Whoops! An evil cult whose dogma was loosely based on Blue Oyster cult lyrics noticed that, as his initials would imply, Eric had some latent telepathic powers. The cult recruited Eric, taught him to use his ESP, and gave him a magic cape called a Shadow Cloak which allowed him to teleport between dimensions and from which he could retrieve any weapon he wanted. Eric worked for the Blue Oyster Cult cult until he finally noticed they were evil demons and turned on them. As Devil Slayer, Eric teamed up with our titular non-team a few times, helping them save the world from his former cult, rescuing his ex-wife Cory from demons who had convinced some well-meaning hippie that he was the messiah, and fighting the collective ennui of a race of suicidal, nose-flute-playing lunar angels. During the course of these adventures, Devil Slayer befriended a heroin-addicted hippie burnout who went by the evocative nickname, Sunshine. Eric promised to help Sunshine overcome his addiction, but got distracted when Ian Fate, the reporter whose family Eric had accidentally murdered, showed up seeking revenge. Ian, who had channeled his grief into a study of the occult, hired some demons to kidnap Eric's ex-wife, Cory. Eric and the Defenders set out to rescue Cory, but it turned out that with the aid of a magical disguise, Sunshine had managed to switch places with Cory, and in the final battle, sacrificed his life to save hers. A tearful Devil Slayer cradled Sunshine's corpse in his arms and teleported off to parts unknown. Gadzooks! Is this whole issue really about Devil Slayer? Has Nighthawk picked up any new interests since his untimely demise? And after revealing that he killed an innocent family, will Devil Slayer do anything that redeems himself in the eyes of readers? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yup. He seems to have gotten pretty into politics. And... I guess that depends on the reader, but 
he abuses some dogs, yells at a dead hippie, and hits his ex-wife. So for me, that's a no. Devil Slayer is holding the lifeless body of Sunshine on an asteroid in the negative zone, a strange antimatter universe filled with brightly colored planetoids and Kirby Crackle. Eric's internal monologue is a nonsensical jumble of self-aggrandizing and self-deprecating gibberish, but the upside is he's pretty bummed out and doesn't think he deserves to live. The reason he chose this particular place to sit down is because the asteroids in this neck of the woods explode on a pretty regular basis, and he's pretty sure this one is about to blow. Dang. Eric's suicidal thoughts must have been at least partially subconscious, because once he realizes that he might die soon, he freaks out and is like, No! I definitely deserve to die, but I don't wanna! Then he sees the ghost of Sunshine pop out of the deceased hippie's body and say, Then, like, don't, man. In his adult state, Eric interprets this vision of Sunshine's ghost as proof positive that his erstwhile pal isn't dead after all, and therefore there is no reason to punish himself. He teleports himself and his spectral friend back to Earth to celebrate. Seconds after they depart, the asteroid explodes. Eric and the ghost of Sunshine appear in the middle of a dive bar. Several of the intoxicated patrons seem to have the faces of demons, but Devil Slayer pays them no mind. He walks up to the bartender and orders two beers. The bartender is stunned that a guy in a speed-skating onesie with a long, billowing Dracula cape is suddenly standing in front of him. Eric's solution is to use his telepathy to make the appearance of his clothing change to look less conspicuous. For some reason, this inexplicable transformation does not seem to allay the bartender's concerns. Weird. So Eric uses his powers to hypnotize the bartender into giving him two beers. He sits down and starts drinking, but notices that Sunshine's beverage is untouched. Devil Slayer is like, Why aren't you drinking? Sunshine is like, Are you kidding? Devil Slayer is like, I have never in my life uttered a single sentence that could possibly be interpreted as a joke. Sunshine is like, Okay, well, putting aside the fact that I'm almost certainly a figment of your imagination, and if not, that I'm a ghost, I'm a little uncomfortable that you brought us here, man. When you were trying to help me get off heroin, didn't you tell me that you were an alcoholic? I'm worried that booze will destroy your life the way drugs did mine. Eric is like, Fuck you, you stupid hippie! I'm fucking Devil Slayer! I can handle a couple of beers. Besides, drugs aren't the reason you're dead. I am. I'm the fucking worst. Hey, no argument here, buddy. Eric storms out of the bar to go do his drinking elsewhere. Meanwhile, in a fancy Manhattan office, Milton Rosenblum, Kyle's long-suffering attorney, is meeting with Luann Bloom, Kyle's former nurse. Luann is like, What do you mean Kyle's dead? Milt is like, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to confuse you with the legalese jargon. See, Dead is a fancy legal term us lawyers use to mean not alive anymore. Luann is not placated by this explanation and storms out of the office, swearing that she is going to get to the bottom of all this and is convinced that once she does, she will find that it is all the defender's fault. A short while later, a drunk and disoriented devil slayer stumbles down the street. His deteriorating mental condition is illustrated by the fact that his wardrobe and appearance are constantly fluctuating. Also, he has a five o'clock shadow, which in comic books seldom bodes well. 
Eric yells at himself for sucking so bad. He sees his reflection in a storefront window and smashes it out of self-loathing. Then he decides he'd maybe like to blame someone else for his condition. He figures that the chain of events that led to Sunshine's death started when he was hired to kill Ian Fate, then goofed and killed his family instead. So, by his reckoning, this is all the fault of one Carlo Bocchini, the gangster he used to work for. Eric uses the Shadow Cloak to teleport to the outside of Bocchino's palatial California estate. Some guard dogs attack him, so he hits them with a spiked mace. Then he Kool-Aid mans his way through the side of the house and into Bocchino's living room, where the gangster's family, including two young children, are hanging out. Eric starts shouting, Bocchino! at the top of his lungs. And while I get that Bocchino is a pretty fun thing to yell, it's an unsettling display. Carlo Bocchino and his bodyguards hear the commotion and come downstairs. The bodyguards look like demons, but nobody seems to find that remarkable, so it's probably just Eric seeing shit. When Bocchino sees that it is Eric, he tells the bodyguards to put their guns away. Eric is like, Carlo, I thought you only wanted me to kill bad people, but one time you told me to kill a guy and it turned out he was a good guy, and also I goofed and murdered his family, and then he got mad and learned magic, and now my junkie friend is dead, and I... Carlo Bocchino cuts Devil Slayer off by punching him in the face. Hooray! Sorry, I get that Bocchino is not a great guy, but he looks a lot like Dennis Farina, and I love Dennis Farina. Also, as you may have figured out by this point, I'm not a huge Devil Slayer fan. Anyway, Dennis Farina, I mean Carlo, is like, Shut the fuck up, dumbass. Yeah, I'm an evil guy, but so were you. You were an assassin. I treated you well and I paid you money to kill people. That's how this shit works. Now you bust into my house dressed like a speed-skating Dracula and threaten me in front of my family? Fuck you! Eric pulls a gun out of his cloak and is like, No, no, because I was only going to kill bad guys is the thing. And then you said this guy was a bad guy? And, but, um, so now I'm going to shoot you is what? And you dress like a speed-skating Dracula. Eric is about to shoot Carlo, but then he looks and sees the horrified expressions on the faces of the children who are watching this scene unfold. He puts his gun down and is like, Uh, sorry, Carlo. This was out of line. I'm gonna go blow myself up now. Eric teleports back to the negative zone and takes a seat on another asteroid. A few seconds later, the asteroid explodes. But was Eric still on it when it did? We'll get back to that in a minute. But first, let's see what's happening in Washington, D.C. A presidential motorcade is pulling up to the White House. The small crowd that watches it roll by is strangely subdued, and the captions inform us that everyone is absolutely terrified of the president. When we finally get a look inside the limousine, it turns out that the president is... Kyle? Huh. A rich, dead... Idiot elected to the highest office in the country? Chilling. Why, he'd be like our 14th or 15th worst president. I definitely wouldn't vote for him. At least not in the primary. Meanwhile, in the idyllic suburban town of Queenstown, Illinois, a father is mowing his lawn while his son plays basketball. They are approached by a bizarrely intense and humorless drifter. Oh, so I guess Devil Slayer didn't blow himself up after all. 
It turns out that Queenstown is where Eric grew up. The lawn-mowing dad is Eric's old buddy Brian. Eric and Brian grew up together and joined the Marines at the same time. Brian now has a prosthetic leg from an injury he sustained in Vietnam. He is also a happy, well-adjusted small business owner and a devoted husband and father. Brian invites his old pal in for dinner. Eric initially accepts, but over the course of the meal, he grows increasingly uncomfortable and eventually makes a half-hearted excuse and sprints out the door. Seeing how well Brian is doing for himself just reminds Eric of what a fuck-up he is and how badly he's screwed up his life. Devil Slayer teleports himself back to the negative zone, where he sits on yet another asteroid time bomb. He has another chat with Sunshine's ghost. This time, Sunshine seems less sympathetic to Eric's plight, and chastises the aspirational Satan murderer for his continual pity party. He's like, Hey man, Brian went through a lot of the same shit you went through, and he didn't murder any families. So, I guess it must be your own fault that your life sucks so bad, huh? Eric is like, yes, I guess so. This time, I should totally let myself blow up on this asteroid. But he doesn't. Once again, when the hunk of space rock is about to explode, Devil Slayer sends himself and Sunshine back to Earth. This time, they arrive in the busy streets of Jerusalem, the city that Eric's ex-wife Cory calls home. Eric wanders around the streets of the city in a daze, before eventually passing out in an alley. After a while, he wakes up again. His surroundings are unfamiliar, but the face that greets him is one he knows very well. It turns out his ex-wife Cory found his unconscious body and brought him home with her. She tells her ex-husband that he was delirious and had a fever, but now his fever is broken and she was able to nurse him back to health. Oh, so that's why he was being such a wingnut. Well, now that he's no longer feverish, he'll probably stop acting like such a self-absorbed asshole, right? R right? Yeah, not so much. Initially, Eric is grateful for all that Corey has done for him, but then he starts freaking out on her. He calls her an idiot and yells at her for having followed that guy who demons tricked into thinking that he was a messiah. Yeah, Eric, because you've never been tricked by demons into joining a cult, huh? In his totally unjustified rage, Eric hits Cory and sends her sprawling. Man, fuck that guy. Tearfully, Cory admits that she was misled, but insists that the faith that led her to follow that hippie dude was legit, and it is because of that faith that she knows that Eric is worth saving. Really, Cory? You sure about that? The Ghost of Sunshine pops back up and echoes Cory's sentiment. Really, Ghost of Sunshine? You sure about that? Eric seems to share my incredulity, insisting that both Cory and the world would be better off without him. Devil Slayer swirls his shadow cloak around himself and prepares to teleport back to the negative zone. I don't know, Eric. At this point, this whole thing is starting to remind me of that fable, the boy who cried, I'm going to blow myself up on an asteroid in the negative zone. I guess Cory hasn't read that story, though because she takes Eric's threat of self-harm at face value and flings herself into the cloak with him. The estranged former couple lands on yet another doomed asteroid in the negative zone. Cory tells her ex that if he's going to blow himself up, he's going to have to blow her up too, because she still loves him. Boo! Moved by this gesture, Eric teleports them back to Cory's apartment and they collapse to the floor in one another's arms. Four months later, 
Steve gets home to his sanctum sanctimonious and reads a letter from Corey, thanking him for all his support and explaining that Eric had turned himself into the authorities and was serving a long prison sentence. Corey found an apartment near the prison and was visiting him as much as she could. Things were tough, but she was more convinced than ever that they were going to work out okay. Steve finishes reading the letter, folds it back up neatly, and breaks down in tears. The end. Damn. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going okay. I am feeling a little bit out of it, I think, from a booster shot, maybe. Oh. I don't know if that makes you feel out of it the same day or the next day. For me, it was the next day, but I also got a flu shot at the same time, so I don't know. Who who knows? Hitting that Fauci speedball, as I think you called it earlier. That was your word choice. Oh, was it? Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah, I remembered that you said it because I thought it was funny. Nice. I have an easy audience to please if you just quote things that I said back at me. (laughs) I'll totally be like, A, have no recollection of saying them, and uh, they are tailor-made for my taste. Mm -hmm. So, if you're wondering what to get me for Bon Mott Christmas... (laughs) Feel free to re-gift, I guess is what I'm saying. Noted. Well, you want to talk about this comic book? I don't know, but that's why we're here, so let's give it a try. All right, let's do our best. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I have a few thoughts on it. The one that's foremost in my mind is that Eric Simon Payne's friend from the Marines, Brian, mm-hmm. his kid is a jerk. Brian Jr. is like, knows his dad has a prosthetic leg and is still like, I'm going to kick your ass at basketball when you're done mowing the lawn, dad. Yeah. Yeah. It did strike me as a little bit odd. The kid might need every advantage that he can get because he's like wearing a football jersey and carrying a basketball like it's a football and is trying to dribble it on the lawn. He's also a little kid. So, okay, okay. Benefit of the doubt, I suppose. Yeah. Overall, this comic for me was, it was just a lot, man. It was a lot. I led with a very much ancillary character and panel because I just don't know if I'm ready to get into the whole thing. But starting at the top, my first thought was, oh, great. A Devil Slayer centric issue. Like, he's probably one of my least favorite dudes in this ensemble. And I would suspect that this issue did little to change that. No, it was more of a confirmation. Yeah. I have really mixed thoughts on this issue. Just to put cards on the table, we talked about this a little bit earlier. It was an unpleasant experience for me reading this book in a way that I'm not sure how much of that has to do with the comic book. I recently found out that a friend of mine who I used to be fairly close with, uh, but I've drifted apart from, um, died. And I found this out yesterday, right before I picked up the comic book to take notes on it. This person had pretty severe issues with alcohol. And so I was like, you know what? I need to get my mind off things. I'll read this comic and take notes on it. And sure didn't take my mind off of things. No, I can imagine it, it didn't, especially the part where I almost called him Nighthawk, where Devil Slayer takes the ghost of the guy that died for him, Sunshine, to a bar. 
Mm-hmm. Specifically to Sleazy's bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole thing where he's dealing with, or rather not dealing with, his issues with alcohol and the extent to which he is in denial about the problems that he does have and just all that stuff. Yeah, the notes that I took, the first note that I have just literally says, dang, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the case regardless of what you are bringing into this comic. It is set up as a melodrama, almost explicitly so. I'm not crazy about some of the messaging in the book, but I will say what I think does give it not necessarily a pass, but what does a lot of the heavy lifting if you are trying to like this comic book is the extent to which it is written with an unreliable narrator telling you the tale. It really does set up up front, instead of the omniscient narrator captioning, all of the captioning of the Devil Slayer story is done from Devil Slayer's point of view. And that includes his discussions with Sunshine, who I think we're supposed to agree with in the book, but the book has plausible deniability because Sunshine probably isn't really there. It's Devil Slayer's hallucination of him, so if we disagree with what Devil Slayer is saying, we're kind of supposed to, maybe. You know? Yeah, I, I thought there was a lot of interesting opportunity to explore the idea of redemption and forgiveness, forgiveness of yourself, um, mm-hmm. but also what is a line too far from which you cannot recover. Right. And what was troubling to me was we seem to get the sense that like Devil Slayer has been driven mad by all the horrible things that he's done and is coming out the other end of it and realizing that he needs to acknowledge that Mm -hmm. and then he can get forgiveness and be okay. Yeah. I mean, what I appreciate is that it isn't just that then he can get forgiveness and be okay. He has also turned himself into the authorities and is presumably going to go to jail for the horrible things that he's done. So It isn't as simple a thing as, well, now I'm absolved of blame because I have confessed my sins and am making peace with them. It is, I think, trying to show that as being the first step towards redemption. But it's a muddled message. As I said, I think parts of it are muddled intentionally. Really, in the first, like, couple of caption bubbles, Eric Simon Payne talks about how but I'm probably being overdramatic. I've always had a flair for melodrama. And so it is being told by a person who is melodramatic and is experiencing delusions throughout the whole issue. But there, there was stuff in there too where it seems like one of the messages that Sunshine is trying to get across is that like, yeah, you saw some bad things, but the reason you turned out the way you did isn't because you saw bad things, it's because you were a bad person to begin with. And I feel like that was like minimizing the effects of trauma in a lot of ways, especially what he experienced in Vietnam was apparently very traumatic for him. And I don't think it was necessarily, well, you were going to turn out this way anyway, regardless of what you've been through, because look, your pal Brian had it worse than you and he's fine. So that proves that it was you all along. Yeah, there's a conflict though in this because on one hand i don't buy that argument which is the total like what's it called objectivist only you yes can make anything work for you yeah i get that in the sense that you are responsible for the choices that you make but this says that that's the only factor however the conflict is it's also saying that you through either 
being part of the criminal justice system or finding religion or both can then basically go back and like rewind right fix the bad shit that you did and like it puts too neat of a bow on it i didn't see it quite that way because i saw it as he was taking the first step in an attempt for long-term redemption but yeah there does have to be that like what is the point after which there is no return is it that he you know blew up a reporter's family and see it's further troubling because so sunshine's argument yeah minimizes like the the horrors of war that potentially is what you know was certainly a contributing factor contributed to him making these terrible choices but at the same time he's also saying no it's because you're you know inherently bad but if you're inherently bad then how can i guess they're saying by acknowledging that you can then change that inherent yeah, property. I, I think there's like a balance point, and, and I think it, it is maybe the comic is trying to acknowledge that, but there are so many different story factors, and the fact that it is so melodramatic, I think, are really muddying the waters of the point that it's trying to make. But I think there is like a balance between there is culpability. You have to be culpable for your own actions, but it's never too late, I think, is what it's trying to get at. I don't know. I think a good takeaway would just be like, if you've been through some shit, try to get help about it. Yeah, I think that is the best way to look at it. And I, I think that's kind of a missing piece in this comic book, because it doesn't really have that aspect of it. Indeed. Another thing, too, is there's an epilogue at the end where Doctor Strange reads a letter that Corey, or Eric Simon Payne's wife, sends mm-hmm. that kind of wraps up the story to say that like he's turned himself in, he's going to prison, and he's trying to find the Lord. So, yeah. I didn't realize that that epilogue was there after the like letters or not the letters, but the marriage announcements part. So I stopped reading there and I was like, oh, I, my notes were like, said something like this is refreshingly ambiguous because it just ended with him like, boop, like zapping off into wherever. Wait, there's a marriage announcement? Yeah, there's like a page before the epilogue, at least in the copy that I had where editors talking about people that have gotten married and had kids and stuff. Oh, in the bullpen bulletins? Yeah. Oh, Stop. you thought I, that was the I end? I thought that was the end. Oh. I was, I was like, oh, what a refreshingly end. Like, it, it didn't put the neat little bow on it, and you're just left wondering. And then I flipped through and found the epilogue, and okay. I was like, oh, okay, there's the, gotcha. there's the end of the story. I thought you were saying there was a page I was missing where, <laughs> no, no, no. where there was, like, an announcement of a wedding. I was like, wait, so they got married before they... Oh, no, at ESP and Corey. Because she does have that weird little speech that she gives where she's like, you're my husband. No divorce can change that. And I was like, well, okay, hold on, lady. I think I said out loud, that's not how this works. My notes say, Corey, that is literally what a divorce does. Yeah. <laughs> that's just factually inaccurate. It actually gave me a momentary stress reaction, too, because I used to be married and I'm... <laughs> You know, not to be bitter or whatever, but I'm glad I'm not anymore. <laughs> Sorry, Corey. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> rules are rules. That divorce was expensive. <laughs> it was supposed to be binding. Maybe it doesn't count in the negative zone. Mm. It was odd to me that so much of this story took place in the negative zone. I am not familiar enough with Marvel continuity to know exactly what the negative zone is. I know it's a place that pops up a lot in, like, the Fantastic Four. I think it's a whole different universe that's made out of antimatter. I know it mostly as the place where 
Rick Jones hung out and dropped acid one time. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a whole story arc where Rick Jones and Captain Marvel were sharing a body. Like, they clicked their bands together, and then one of them would go to the negative zone, the other one would get control of the body, and they would take turns, and Captain Marvel was off on a mission, so Rick Jones brought a tab of acid with him and tripped balls in the negative zone. Whoa. Place is weird enough. Yeah, no kidding. It was odd how they got it past the censors, too. He was, like, backstage at a concert because he was a rock and roll musician. This is in, like, the mid-70s. And somebody gave him a tab of something, and he's like, what is this? And they said, it's vitamin C. What do you think it is? And then later on, he's like, well, I'm bored. I guess I'll take this vitamin C. And it's like, okay, well, if you're acknowledging that you're doing it because you're bored, then you do know that it's not vitamin C. But after that point, the comic treated it like, oh, he got dosed and he didn't know that was going to be drugs, but he clearly did. Mm -hmm. And yeah, anyway, it was a whole issue. He ended up saving the day by tripping balls and uh, coming to a greater understanding of himself, man. Wow. This was years before Michael Pollan wrote How to Change Your Mind, which Mm -hmm. basically (laughs) says the same thing. It was probably an inspiration. Mm. So that's mostly what I think of when I think of the negative zone. And the fact that it took place there and the fact that it looks so similar to all of the other like weirdo between dimension places that we've seen the Defenders go in various comic books had me wondering, like, there's this whole he's feeling suicidal arc and that's what he has to do is end everything. I was wondering if that was just like a little story he was telling Sunshine and really the reason he was there was because he was hoping that Capybara youth pastor would show back up and he could watch another guy shit on the lawn. Oh, that was in the negative zone? I don't know if it was the negative zone. Looked like the negative zone, though. Mm. Yeah, this wasn't as weird as that. It was pretty weird. It was pretty weird. In fact, that was my first reaction to when I started maybe the first third of the comic or quarter of the comic. I was like, oh, yay, getting back into this just absolutely strange weirdness. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fun. I like strange weirdness. And then, yeah, and then all the other stuff. It's odd because it is a thing that I think J.M. DeMatteis does better than a lot of writers is doing very human, very focused, very character driven stories, but in a cosmic setting Mm -hmm. and introducing elements of weird into them. What this issue was missing, I think, was intentional humor. It really didn't seem to have any of it. And I think it would have benefited from it. There was not much levity in here at all. No. If any. No. I liked the they live aspect of it, like the John Carpenter movie. I kept trying to imagine Devil Slayer as Rowdy Roddy Piper. (laughs) I can see that. He sees demons everywhere that nobody else can see. I remember, I love They Live. I think it is a wonderful film. Like, from the eight-minute body slam fight in the alley to uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper's many, many quippy one-liners that apparently he showed up on set for with a notebook full of, in case he was ever in an action movie. Oh, wow. But I do remember thinking, even watching it the first time as a kid, like... He should get some kind of a second opinion before he just goes around shooting people with a shotgun because he thinks they're aliens. Mm -hmm. And I think that is maybe what we are supposed to take away from old ESP's performance in this comic is we had joked before about the fact that, oh, is he just a serial killer? Mm -hmm. He thinks people are demons and he's killing them. 
And we see in this almost a confirmation of that. It's not just the mafia guys, hench people. He sees them as demons. Okay, maybe they are. Maybe there's a pact between the magia, as the Marvel Universe likes to call the mafia. Mm -hmm. I just love the idea that they got sued by the mafia at some point. (laughs) No, no, no. This is the magia. But maybe they have a pact with demons or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you also just see, like, passed out patrons in the bar. He sees them as demons, too. And it's like, oh, shit. And he's been killing demons. Or devils. That's what his name is all about. Oh, fuck. I mean, he must have been doing some pretty serious shit if he can turn himself over to the authorities in Israel and they'll extradite him to the U.S. Yeah, it was a little disturbing in his wife or ex-wife's or whatever's letter to Dr. Strange of, you know, she puts a pretty fine point on saying, wow, we were really surprised at, like, all the media attention. That's like, how many people did you kill, dude? Yeah, well, I mean, if nothing else, wasn't he in Dollar Bill's documentary about the Defenders? Wasn't that the adventure that that took place in? Oh, yeah, it might have been. So that's got to be some super shitty PR for the Defenders. If it's just, like, costumed serial killer and Defender... Mm-hmm. Like, they already are a secretive group who has gotten a ton of bad press in the past. Maybe that is why Steve is crying I was just going to say, that is probably why Steve shed a tear. Oh, oh the PR firm's going to charge so much. My curating is going to be through the basement. Whatever's the opposite of through the roof. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't know what a curating is. Both Steve and Hub feel this way. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah, me either. Okay. But it's, you want it to be high, though. I would think so. Okay. So we can come back to some of the more ancillary aspects of the main story in this, but let's take a look at the interludes that this comic book has, because those were interesting. What did you think of the first interlude, the one that takes place in Milton Rosenblum's office? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one was pretty straight ahead. Luann, Kyle's nurse of the last, I don't know, week, month, year, whatever. Tough to tell. Uh, comes in and Rosenblum's like, Kyle's dead. And she's like, that sucks. I'm really mad. Why didn't you do anything to find out about it? And storms off. Yeah. But there are some touches within that that I think are interesting. My favorite of those being, you see that Milton Rosenblum, for the first time, has his television turned off. You see his television in the shot. Every single meeting that he took with Kyle, the TV was on and he was just watching it. So it seemed like almost a fitting memorial to Kyle that finally he turned the TV off. Or it could just be confirming that Kyle was the only client he watched TV while he was having meetings with. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was interesting that they showed it in the background. That seems like it must have on some level been an intentional choice. Yeah, that's a good point. That was kind of like almost a running joke of every meeting he had with Kyle. He was mm-hmm. like, hey, hold on. <laughs> Just gotta find out what happens on Animal Planet. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we see that uh, Luann blames the Defenders for whatever happened, which I think is fair from her perspective, probably. But it is also odd that Milton is so sure that Kyle is dead. Because Milton has dealt with this exact scenario when Kyle was dead for a while before. Like, he doesn't even raise it as a possibility. Like, well, okay, this has happened at least once before where he was dead and then he came back and it caused all kinds of legal problems. 
Yeah, that's true. His brain could be in another bowl of drugs somewhere. Sure, or he could be over in Valhalla hanging out with a street shark. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of possibilities, but they are not really explored. No, it's just time for Milk to turn off that TV, completely sure that Kyle is dead. Which brings us to the second interlude, which confused the fuck out of me. So in the second interlude, we see Washington, D.C., we see the monument and the presidential limo, mm -hmm. and we, everybody's super freaked out and scared. Everybody is very afraid of the president. And then the president is... Bum, bum, bum. Kyle? What? Yeah. It gotta be different dimension, right? Talk about negative zone. Mm. Gosh. Can you imagine? He was so bad at running a company, he, he got almost put in jail. Yeah, it's it, it's, almost... it seems pretty far-fetched that a corrupt <laughs> businessman who has bankrupted a company and is an incompetent billionaire could be elected president of the United States. I mean, I know it's a comic book, but come on. Oh, my God. Eerily prescient. Mm. Eerily president. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Fair. What did you think of the art in this issue? I enjoyed it. The... I keep wanting to call it Negative Land. Nope, that's a band. Zone? Yep. Negative Zone? Really enjoyable. Must have been an absolute pain to render that many pages with the black of space filled in the background mm. everywhere. Yeah. That part I liked. There were a lot of really interesting art choices that were made in it. The faces looked really weird to me. It's a different inker. It's Mike Esposito, whose work I generally liked, but especially the close-ups of Eric when he is in his Devil Slayer outfit. His face just looked really weird, and there were some other characters where the, the close-ups of the faces, the details just looked really weird. It's another thing, though, that could be played off as that being part of the comic book being told from Eric's point of view, and a sign that he is growing increasingly unstable. I chose to read it that way because the way that especially as he, he gets more into his mania mm -hmm. the way that his face is drawn is like less artistically good it's he's got peter lorry eyes it, it's like they tried mm -hmm. to draw peter lorry and then just drew a cowl over him <laughs> and i kind of enjoyed that and i kind of enjoyed picturing him as peter lorry but it wasn't just eric that was drawn that way there was a panel that cracked me up in a way that it was not supposed to when he first regains consciousness and sees his wife, the picture of Corey on that page, she is drawn really creepy looking, and the caption just says, That face! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not, I think, the way it was intended to be. Yeah, she is making lemur eyes like the finest of Joey's. Mm -hmm. It is just a very creepy face. And throughout the comic, she's generally drawn better than that. But the inconsistency of the art, I think, does lend perhaps unintentionally to the feeling of mania that I think the comic overall is supposed to bring up. Yeah, I didn't I didn't mind it so much. And I also liked it in conjunction with they show ESP's disguise kind of flickering in and out of phase where his civilian duds that normally cover his Devil Slayer outfit will be like missing a boot. Mm -hmm. And so he's got a Devil Slayer boot on, on one yeah. foot. And uh, that sort of keeps happening. That was that was fun. Yeah, like when, when Prince did that thing where he was half Batman, half the Joker. How do I not? I don't know. That? I think it was for the Bat Dance video. I, I feel like you're just yanking my chain. I don't know any of this stuff. You don't know the Bat Dance video? No. 
Bat Dance was a number one hit single from Prince's soundtrack for the 1989 Batman movie. Bat Dance. And the whole song was quotes from the movie put over dance music, and it was nine minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) I might be exaggerating slightly, but I'm pretty sure it was over eight minutes, and it was like a hit single, and it was just like, what the fuck? (laughs) That is bizarre. And I'm pretty sure at some point he did a thing where he was half Batman, half the Joker, but I might be wrong about that. Wow. Well, I didn't really believe you about the Total Eclipse of the Heart video until I watched it, so... All right, Bat Dance is queued up. The 80s were a weird time, Corey. That is true. Hey, guys. This is Editor Hub here in the future. So I just watched the Bat Dance video, and you guys, it's fucking awesome. I mean, it's every bit as weird as I remembered it, but I like it a lot better than I did when I was a kid. Also, it's only seven minutes long, but that's still pretty long for a number one hit. Anyway, you guys should totally watch the Bat Dance video. Back to the show. I liked those fashion choices, too, when he is in various states of disheveled, in various states of being Devil Slayer. It does create a very unstable idea of what is happening in this comic book, and I I think that part is pretty well done. Let's go back to Sleazy's Bar, because that was maybe my favorite setting in this book. All right. I've worked in places not entirely unlike Sleazy's. (laughs) I actually love the name. I was surprised at the choice of different stemware that was on display behind the bar. I was like, those are some very fancy cocktail glasses that are just strewn about. But there's like exposed plaster and people passed out at card tables in this bar. Who the fuck is ordering like an up Manhattan here? Yeah, I had the same observation. I was like... Is that a gimlet glass? That seems out of place. My favorite thing about the decor of Sleazy's, though, was that there were two posters in the background that just said the word wrestling Wrestling. on them. (laughs) I noticed that, too. Do you remember when we went to that local, I think it's a DOA is the local pro wrestling league, but there was the guy there who was, I think, champion at the time, did this thing that I absolutely loved, where... After he would do a suplex or something, he would just stand up and proudly say the word wrestling. That was fun. That was what it reminded me of so much. This Mm -hmm. is in like a weird like Elks Lodge that we saw this pro wrestling in. Mm -hmm. That was a really fun time. That was a fun time. And I liked that decor because it reminded me of that. Sleazy's Bar. Do you think they do the wrestling at Sleazy's Bar? Oh, no. I wouldn't think so. You can't. There's no room in there. It's tiny. You wouldn't think, but like the Elks Lodge wasn't that big either. When people jumped off the top rope, they had to crouch down. (laughs) So who knows? Who knows what they're running in Sleazy's Bar? Nobody. Hmm. Well, there's certainly more to talk about in this book, but I think most of what I wanted to talk about is going to come up in the minutia. Anything else you wanted to bring up first? No, let's uh, dive on in. All right. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Well, I guess since we already touched on it, let's talk about some fashion. All right, sartorially speaking, which fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? So, we already talked about the kind of wonky phasing in and out of 
ESP's costume. Mm-hmm. That was fun. There were some panels where he's usually wearing kind of like a green, I don't know, work jacket. I think it looked like a windbreaker. I think it was supposed to be his army jacket, mm. but I might be wrong about that. But then sometimes it turned into a like pretty a... cool looking like plaid yeah. green, almost pea coat, but like halfway between a trench coat and a pea coat. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a similar jacket to that that I like a lot. Oh, nice. Hobo Eric, I thought, was a pretty sharp dresser. I liked his little flat cap. Mm -hmm. I liked that coat. It was honestly a pretty good look. And I know it's supposed to be a sign that he is in mental decline. I thought he looked good with a 5 o'clock shadow, too. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier. The 5 o'clock shadow, except for a brief Don Johnson, Miami Vice era, like, window of time, it's pretty much always code for... Well, this person's gone down or hit rock bottom or yeah. is struggling in some way. Yeah, specifically in comic books, it is almost always shorthand for alcoholism. Like if you look, you can see over there that Iron Man cover where it's the demon in the bottle. One of the ways they signify that is he's got a five o'clock shadow going, uh, which is unfair to people like me who have a five o'clock shadow if I shave at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I was really hoping that Don Johnson window would extend farther to it continuing to be a sex symbol. But no, with the exception of Don Johnson and Fred Flintstone. <laughs> the two greatest sex symbols of the 80s. Right. It is usually visual shorthand for uh, this guy's going through some shit. Yeah. I really enjoyed, this is, I guess this is fashion, but on the cover, the ghost of Sunshine has gotten a makeover and, uh, He's supposed to be an aggressive ghost who's grabbing Eric by the chest there, but mostly I was just struck by how much better he looks with that Motley Crue 80s aquanetted hair metal haircut than he does with his own stringy hippie hair, you know? Oh, yeah. It's almost like a, a more, like, electrified version of David Bowie's hair in Labyrinth. Oh, totally, yeah. It's a good look for Sunshine. Death has really just taken years off of him there. His corpse is drawn really, like, comic book muscly, too, mm-hmm. which is weird, because he's always otherwise... Pretty emaciated, as, generally, yeah, yeah. Skinny. Other elements of fashion that I enjoyed in this book, uh, some of the tourists in Jerusalem were dressed pretty interestingly. There is one tourist who was wearing a very tiny camera around his neck with a straw hat and a patterned shirt that I thought was a lot of fun. I had made note of that as well. I don't know if it also reminded you of our experience in Mexico with that uh, loud American couple Mm -hmm. where the man had... I'm sure we've talked about it on the show. We may or may not have, but uh, it it is something that comes up a lot between us. (laughs) No, Frank! (laughs) That's a woman's hat, Frank. Yeah. It was just a wonderful thing to overhear in the airport was, Frank! (laughs) No, Frank! Frank, that's a woman's hat. And that's all we know about Frank, but uh, I think we've both built up just a rich backstory for Frank in our minds. Mm -hmm. I like the guy. Yeah, I do too. Good for him, man. Mm -hmm. I also appreciated that one of the bodyguards that ESP was seeing as a demon was wearing a bright yellow sweater vest under his suit jacket. Mm -hmm. I thought that's a nice look if you're either a mafia bodyguard, I'm sorry, a magia bodyguard, Mm. or a demon. Yeah, and and on that topic, um, I thought they nailed the uh, magia Mm -hmm. boss look. You gotta have the carnation. Oh, Carlos Bocchini 
never going to be without a carnation, even when he is enjoying some family time at home. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how weird that would be, like, like if you just had to dress up all the time? I would not care for that. I would just take the life out of it. It would take so much time. I guess you would probably get it down at a certain point, but I don't know. I know when I was a little kid, I used to like to dress up a lot. Yeah, because it's, it's novel, right? Yeah, I mean, it was. I, I used to wear a clip-on tie every day <laughs> when I was, like, five or six. Every day? Yeah. I would wear it with t-shirts. I was talking about this with our parents last weekend. Yeah? Yeah. They had mentioned they found my third grade picture in which I'm wearing a, a little blazer with a clip-on tie. And, Ooh. You know, very sharp. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, your mom was talking about how, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to wear a red, like, Century 21 blazer all the time. It <laughs> drove my mom crazy. I thought it was so cool looking. And she was like, you looked like a little real estate salesman. It was very unsettling. <laughs> Any other fashion you wanted to discuss? Let's see. We've discussed our <laughs> childhood blazer <laughs> and clip-on tie wearing. Nope, we're good. Okay, good. Well, you know what? We were just talking about Carlos Bocchini and his aesthetic. Which leads into this category, Corey. Behold or be gone. Mm. Corey, I think we both recognize that lately time is broken, right? It's certainly weird. Yeah. So I think it's time we took advantage of that fact. Mm. And recast some movies that by the old standard of time, it would be impossible to recast with these actors as they're both dead. We mentioned that there are times in which Devil Slayer looks a lot like Peter Lorre in this issue. Mm -hmm. To my mind, Carlo Bocchini looks a lot like Dennis Farina, but with like a Powers Booth jawline. So I started thinking about movies that I would like to recast that would have scenes between Peter Lorre and Dennis Farina. <laughs> and so I started thinking of like iconic film couples or duos or buddies that would show up in movies. And what I came down to is Behold or Be Gone, recasting Star Wars, where C3PO and R2D2 <laughs> are Peter Lorre and Dennis Farina. Oh my goodness. Is Peter Lorre C3PO? We can go either way with this, because I've pictured has, it both has ways. Big eyes. He has big eyes, and he also always seems very put upon, and like he is being uh -huh. unfairly, in his mind, oppressed. But he is also kind of the leader of the two, and is blusteringly bossing the other one around. Mm -hmm. And if we're just going from body types, Peter Lorre is more of a R2-D2, and C-3PO is more of a Dennis Farina type, a, a tall, strapping robot. Um, and I think either one would be really funny. Like, I can see Peter Lorre being like, beep, boop. <laughs> <laughs> and I can also see Dennis Farino just being like, what, I'm supposed to let the Wookiee win? Um, that is a behold. I would honestly, if we are recasting, if we get rid of the old version of Star Wars, I've seen it enough times. Hey, hey, smoking's not growing up at all, okay? <laughs> the PSAs would be so good. Hey, kid. I really thought you don't have a heart. <laughs> 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 Beep boop. Hey, use. Yeah, beep boop, okay? Stop all the smoking. Dennis Farina, do you really think I don't have a heart? If we do it the other way, see? Either it way works. works. We should keep the names. I, I, He would call him Dennis Farina. Oh, yeah. Like, maybe it would slip up. We'd get the outtakes. But, uh, yeah, I think that would be really fucking fun. And I think it would really piss off a lot of people. Hey, Peter Lorre, go fix the engine. 
to be boob. I love it. Okay, yeah, it's it's definitely a behold for me too. <laughs> I know a lot of people see like Star Wars as this like sacred thing, and that it it couldn't be improved, and that it should not be touched or tampered with. But I'm good with this. I I think there's always room for improvement, and that is really the best way of doing that. Certainly, always room for poking fun. Mm. Okay, para beholds. Para beholds. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? It's, uh, I had to go with the one, the slam. Yes, yes, much like a Onyx's greatest hits album, this comic book just gives us one entry, <laughs> and it's slam. Ooh. Yeah, there are two instances of characters slamming doors. Mm-hmm. All right. That's what we got to work with. Slam. This is kind of a weird one for this issue, but, uh... Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who was your best defender? Who was your worst offender? For best, I went with Steve. Before I realized he was crying about his Q rating. Eh. But uh, I went with Steve because, in a very un-Steve-like manner, he received news and quietly processed it. I had the same entry. In part, there were not a lot of choices. I think it was Steve or Eric in this one. Mm-hmm. We could maybe stretch it. I don't think we could even count Sunshine because he's a figment of Devil Slayer's imagination. And I don't think he did a great job. Considered the idea of Milt Rosenblum, but that's a little bit of a stretch because he's not actually helping the defenders in this issue. So yeah, we are basically left with Steve. Well, Kyle's president. Yeah, yeah I guess. But we also know that everybody's afraid of him. Yeah, so, so it seems like he's doing a bad job as president. Well, I'm not, I'm not voting for him. No. A lesser of two evils party all the way. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I think Steve, like you said, he did a good job. There was also the intimation in the letter that Corey wrote him that he had first reached out to them. So for, I guess, being a decent pen pal, Steve gets the nod. Yeah. Conversely, worst offender. Eric Simon Payne for for all the murder. Yeah, all the murder, hitting a dog with a spiked mace. That was very upsetting to me. He did not need to do any of that. We know that he can zap himself wherever he wants to go. Right. He could have zapped himself into the living room. Right inside. Yeah. But instead, he hit a couple of dogs with a spiked mace. And then he hit his ex-wife, too. He pushed down Sunshine's ghost. Yep. He did a bad job. He was a jerk hole. And we also learned that he is a serial killer. Mm-hmm. He also hypnotized a bartender into over-serving him. Like, there, there's all kinds of instances in this book of Devil Slayer doing a bad job. He, he's just a real piece of shit. I know the people listening can't see it, but I've been shaking my head disapprovingly the whole time yeah. Bob has been talking. He is also, and this is about more, Devil Slayer. Well, <laughs> be fair, Corey, most of the time when I'm talking. <laughs> He also does something more subtle in this issue, but which I find maybe not equally distasteful, but pretty distasteful. He subscribes to that particularly obnoxious brand of narcissism, where rather than being like, I'm the best, he is self-aggrandizing in his self-deprecation, where he's like, no, I'm the worst. There's never been anybody as bad as me. I'm responsible for everything that's gone wrong with everybody's lives. And yeah, he has done a bad job. He is a piece of shit. But I always hate it when people are like, oh, I'm the worst. I'm like, shut up. And fuck Devil Slayer. Yeah, I don't like him. No, I'm glad he is going to jail. 
I like him less than I did when this comic started. Yeah, and we were not fond of him nope. before this comic started. Nope. We like him less after this in-depth focus on him than we did when we thought he was just a child murderer. And I was conflicted about the way that his wife slash ex-wife was handled in this, where she gives up all of her agency, whereas before she was, you know, doing her own thing. Mm -hmm. And is like, well, now that uh, Eric's in jail, I got a little apartment by the prison, and we can visit, and we pray, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And she just basically gave up her whole life to help him redeem himself. It feels yeah, like. and I think that is part of what I found so distasteful about the way he was viewing things, is that he was trying to take blame for things. And there's a difference between accepting responsibility and recentering the narrative on you. And that is what he was doing, but it's also what this issue did. It recentered her narrative on him and really focused on he is the important one through all of this, not his victims, not the people he's wronged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shitty. Yeah, he did a really shitty job. There was only like one instance where I kind of liked him, and that was where he was like, oh shit, I'm, I'm sorry, Carlos, where he apologizes to the mob boss and teleports away. I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. That is odd. And it also was weird to see him call him by his first name and acknowledge, yeah, these guys had a working relationship. Like, they were pals. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yuck. Corey, let's have ourselves a battle of the band names! What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? Well, the first two that jumped out at me were actual band names. Was one of them Miscreants? No. I was so disappointed that the Miscreants is already a band. They're Swedish, apparently. Ah, okay, I've got a German metal band. Can Ooh. you guess what their name was? No. Cosmic Wasteland. That is already a band? It's a German metal band. Damn it, They're... that was one of my choices. <laughs> They're from Bavaria. Ah, what was the other one that was already a band? Ah, this one, I really wanted to choose the Negative Zone. But oh. according to the internet, they are a self-described... Young French band from Marseille, whose talent should burst out before long. Well, I'm sure it will. Negative Zone, if you'd like to advertise on this show, I'm sure your talent will burst out even sooner. Do you remember when me and Lee, our, our band put out our CD, and so technically we had our own record label, but we just had a record label to put out our album. Mm -hmm. But we got a bunch of emails and letters from people wanting us to sign them. And one of them says, we are brothers who have been making music since ancient times. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. I wonder whatever happened to those guys. No idea. Probably they're at the top of the pops. Their talent has most assuredly burst out. Mm-hmm. That young man was Harry Styles. Oh. <laughs> A man whose music career I am entirely unfamiliar with, but I understand he's a uh, pop culture reference these days. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Only going one direction, and that's to the top. I was waiting for, yeah. for that. Yeah. Thank you. So what names did you find that are not already bands? These are both really, like, weed-forward bands. Okay. One is called Blaze and Crumble. Ooh. And, uh, I don't know, I think they probably sound like Snowbud and the Flower People or, or other kind of, like, uh... I am unfamiliar with Snowbud and the Flower People. What kind of music do they make? It's like stonery rock. They had a song about how much they like Amsterdam. 
They have a song Fair. called Bong Hit. Okay. They might have been a Portland band, actually. That would not surprise me. Yep. I just had the one, because uh, you did more research than me. I was unaware that Cosmic Wastelands was already a band. Didn't you Google Cosmic Wasteland band? I didn't look it up. Oh. I just thought, that's uh, that's probably You have one. to look them up. I know. Up. As I said, The Miscreants is already a band, but The Weak-Willed Miscreants isn't. And so I had The Weak-Willed Miscreants as a band. I think they're, uh, I don't know, I want to say like country punk. Like, they sound like a punk band, but for some reason I'm seeing them having some country Joe and the Fish elements to them. Oh, my. I think it's from the movie Zachariah, where <laughs> country Joe and the Fish played a band of outlaws called the Crackers. And they seemed like they were weak-willed miscreants in that movie. Okay. I like the uh, alliteration in the band name. Yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. What was your other choice? The other choice is... I think these guys are kind of like a, a heavy-sounding band, and they're called the Wasted Remnants. Ooh, so this is like a, a different kind of stoner rock from, what was it? Blaze and Crumble. Yeah, that, so they're, they're more like Queens of the Stone Age. The Wasted Remnants are yeah. more like Queens of the Stone, Stone Age. Age. Yeah, Blaze and Crumble, though, they have a, a sound not unlike Snowbud and the Flower People. It's just two guys. Blaze and Crumble. Right, I figured. Okay. Yeah, like Kruder and Dorfmeister, but Stoner. Right, or Tango of... and Cash. Yeah. Well, what do you feel like going with? Uh, what was yours again? The Weak Willed Miscreants. I like both of yours a lot. Do you? Yeah. Let's say, let's give those two kooky Portlanders a shot. Blaze, okay. Blaze and Crumble. Blaze and Crumble? Let me write that down. I don't know. I think the other two names are better, but I don't know. I like these guys. Yeah, why not? We do have a new recent champ. We don't know who's winning this week's contest yet, but uh, last week, someone finally unseated a thousand other failures. We no longer have a goth marching band in contention. Hard to believe. This week's choice is down to the Moonford Rhyme Makers and the Dreaded Celestials. Oh, okay. The New Age dub reggae. So, uh... Yeah, it'll it'll be weird not having a thousand other failures in contention. They had a much longer run than I had anticipated. I think uh, longer than anybody anticipated. Yeah, yeah. We just we do not have our finger on the pulse of young America the way that we once did. No, I mean just gonna fire up those goth marching band TikTok channels. Mm-hmm. If that is that a thing? <laughs> Probably. Okay. I'm sure it's a very popular thing. There was a marching band that was in the news recently because uh, the lady peed on a guy. On purpose? Yeah, they were like a Rage Against the Machine marching band cover band. And they brought a guy up on stage and the lady pissed on his face. Oh. Yeah. Then they apologized (laughs) because it like went viral. I can't put that in context. No, how could you? Nobody could. Nobody, nobody had that on their bingo card. <laughs> tight fitting. Maybe they're not a marching band. Maybe they were just like a band that does like all brass instrument covers of things. Because it was, yeah, it was Rage Against the Machine and like, you just peed on a guy. And he was like, yeah, yeah. That's it. Hmm. Oh, hey. Yep. Well, I'll post that on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Corey, what was your favorite panel in this issue? So we already talked about Negative Zone, um, Mm -hmm. that intro 
page is great. Yeah. It's really colorful, more so than I would have thought a place called the Negative Zone would be. Yeah, well, it first showed up in the Fantastic Four and was designed by Jack Kirby. So you have your kind of standard stalagmites and heavenly spheres, uh, but there is a lot of like just weird energy and Kirby crackle going on. So Mm -hmm. yeah, all those heavenly spheres kind of reminded me of uh, like a Trix cereal. Mm -hmm. They're all different colors. Yeah, the negative zone is a really cool looking place. I like that panel a lot, too. My favorite, I think, is probably a few pages later. It's a panel that's really leaning into the reality warping that is happening, possibly in Eric's mind, but possibly just in the negative zone. It's on page six, and I call it Funhouse Eric. It's just weird, distorted images of Eric as Devil Slayer zooming around in the negative zone. In some, he is clearly two-dimensional and has little arrows for hands. In some, he has those, like, white eyeballs that show that he is just infused with power. It's just a really cool-looking, weird panel, and you see in the background of it, the shadow cloak is just zipping around like a maze. It's cool. Yeah, it really lends the sense of, oh boy, things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. My backup favorite panel we've talked about it before but it is the detail in milt rosenblum's office uh and you see the off tv lying there in silent tribute to kyle Mm. it's just nicely drawn there's a lot of detail in his office and i appreciated that yeah that's a good one i had a backup that i i chose i think for its contrast on page nine i called it california nights and that's the view of the compound of the the gangster before esp starts beating up the dogs Mm. And it's uh, not black and white, but a, like a blue and black and gray kind of night scene of this uh, fancy estate. Palm trees and clouds. And really cool. Pretty good. I also did enjoy the scene of like domesticity inside the Magia mansion where you just see like little kids playing with toys on the carpet and shit. When he busts open the wall. Kool-Aid man's his way in and is like, Bocino! Bocino is a fun name. Bocino. Bocino. What was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? Oh man, there are so many words to choose from. There really were, and the captioning really did lean into the melodrama of the issue. In a way that was sometimes pretty effective. Yeah, so uh, speaking of melodrama, yeah, mine is just pretty on the nose, but it's the beginning of a whole page of exposition starting on page two, where Devil Slayer is narrating and with one hand cradling uh, the body of sunshine and the other hand just gesturing to the (laughs) heavens and saying, overly dramatic as usual. But then I've always had a penchant for melodrama, hiding behind pompous airs, turgid speech. What better way to keep people at a distance? That was my choice as well. What? Yeah, I felt like that piece of narration was in some ways kind of the load-bearing meta-narrative of the comic book. That we are seeing this all through his lens, and so that's why if there's anything that's super fucked up that happens in it, that's why. And I thought... That made a lot of sense. I thought that was a clever move, and it made it possible for me to enjoy this issue somewhat, or at least find it interesting. Load-bearing meta-narrative. 
Yeah, pretty good, huh? Yeah. All right. Nice. Any other words you wanted to talk about, or was that pretty much it? Yeah, I guess rather than a, a particular part of the dialogue or exposition, there was something that came up over and over in this comic several times, at least three. And I think it's supposed to help clue us into what a struggle that ESP is having, mm-hmm. where he just repeats the same word over and over again. Death, death, death. Mm-hmm. Bottle, bottle, bottle. Yep. So I googled that, and that's uh, called a epizuxis, I think, which is a, a literary thing when you just repeat the same word over and over. That's a fun word. Epizuxis. Mm-hmm. That's probably not how you say it. but That's how I say it. Oh. Epizuxis. Nice. That's fun. Nice. He seems like that's nice. probably like... Good one. Thanks. Uh, he seems like he's probably like a uh, benign kind of bumbling wizard in a sword and sorcery thing. Hmm. We must go to the Tower of Epizuxis. And then they arrive, and there's, like, this hunched-over guy who's like, Me, go away! And they're like, No, you must lead us to Epizuxis. And then you find out he's Epizuxis. And he's like, Tower, tower, tower. Mm-hmm. Okay. I spent the murder, 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 <laughs> mu- 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 murderous shit. Yep. <laughs> Popping bottles on the White House lawn. Guess I'm still the same old Epizuxis. Oh. <laughs> well, Corey, although he doesn't appear in this issue, I think we would both recognize that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? What's his takeaway from this issue? Ah, much like me, the Hulk was conflicted about some of the things this issue had to say. On one hand, this idea of, hey, I asked the man upstairs for forgiveness, so we all good, right? <laughs> yep. Didn't really fly with the Hulk. And also this idea of our criminal justice system being an effective vehicle for rehabilitation. Mm. I think that we have seen that the way the letter of the law is applied is not equitable. Nope. And also with recidivism and the amount of people we got locked up and everything that the whole rehabilitative aspect of it doesn't quite seem to be working as we would hope yep that said the conflict also lies in that the hulk really did appreciate this idea of owning your fuck-ups and so that was his takeaway is that you should do that okay i had the hulk being kind of overwhelmed by some of the larger messages that were trying to be conveyed in this issue. So he focused on a single and actionable takeaway, which is maybe try to avoid using the phrase final solution, especially if you're in Israel. Oh. Because that was something that really jumped out at me right before he teleports off to presumably try to off himself and his ex-wife, Corey, jumps in the way of a comet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Devil Slayer says, There is only one solution, the final solution. Now, I think he's talking about suicide there, which is not great to begin with. Mm-hmm. But really, just try to avoid using that phrase. And again, especially if you are hanging out in Israel at the time, which he was. Mm. It's another uh, reason he's the worst. Mm-hmm. Doesn't think about his word choices. Nope. So I guess overall, the takeaway from this would be, fuck Devil Slayer. That's the Hulk's rule. That's the Hulk's rules. 
Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1982, and the month of our Lord, August, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So it won't surprise you to know that one of Steve's favorite songs is Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. Of course! And I know normally when these chart-topping things come up, it's usually some influence, either on purpose or accidental, from Mm -hmm. either Wong or Steve that has caused these songs to climb to the top of the charts, and that's why they're involved with it. That's not the case. No? Although it did hit number one on August 29th of 1982, But the connection here is that that song was actually said to be inspired by a time when Steve Miller met Diana Ross. Oh. And the two of them were introduced by Wong at a club. Really? Yes. Did either one of them reach out and grab the other, or did they just wanna? Um, You know, (laughs) Wong was just not giving up any information about that. I just, you know. Fair enough. I I applaud his discretion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that may be one thing that Wong and Steve were up to in August of 1982, but it wasn't the only thing. Another thing that they were up to was just watching a lot of baseball. (laughs) Wong has always been a big baseball fan, and I think we've talked about him and Steve going to some games before and Steve not really getting it. Mm -hmm. But uh, Steve wanted to bond with Wong, so they would sit in front of the television and they would watch the games together. And As they were watching, Steve was just kind of zoning out and singing abracadabra to himself in his head. (laughs) Yes, I want to reach out and grab you. Abra, abra, cadabra. Excellent song. Yes, yes. Wonder if they could work in a reference to the Crimson Bands of Sidereck. I'm going to write Steve Miller about that. Mm. But that's all happening inside his head. Oh, sure. Outside his head, he's just uh, pretending to be really invested in the baseball game. And Wong really appreciates having somebody watch the game with him, and he thinks Steve is a big baseball fan. Mm. One of the things that Wong had mentioned was that uh, he thought Pete Rose was a real asshole. Hmm. Which is fair, because by all accounts, Pete Rose is a real asshole. And Wong was always a big fan of uh, Hank Aaron. And as the season progressed, it became pretty clear that Pete Rose was about to beat Hank Aaron's record for at-bats. That didn't sit well with Wong. He, he's like, man, I really like Hank Aaron. He, he still at that point was going to hold the home run record for quite some time, but he didn't want to have Pete Rose beat any of his records, but it seemed pretty inevitable. And it did, in fact, happen on August 14th. And Wong, because he thought Steve had been paying attention to the games, thought that Steve would want to know about that. So he left Steve a note that said, bad news, Steve. P. Rose beats Hank's ABs. So, to Wong, that was pretty clear. Like, we've been talking about this. Mm -hmm. Pete Rose beats Hank Aaron's at-bats record. Mm -hmm. But, because Steve hadn't been paying attention when Wong was talking, he didn't have that context. So he interpreted it as, The purity Rose has beaten Beast's abs? Oh, no. Well, I'll take back this title of having the most abs. No, no Rose can take it from me. So really, for the whole month of August, Steve just kept doing sit-ups. Because he thought there was going to be an abs contest that he was going to have to beat the Rose of Purity at. Um, To be fair, there really wasn't the whole month of August. It was like about a week. Mm -hmm. Maybe a couple of days tops. But Steve did a lot of Mm sit-ups. And then eventually he forgot about it. Oh, good. But that's what he and Wong were doing in August of 1982. Wow. A lot of sit-ups because of a misunderstood note about baseball. 
Dang. Corey, thanks for joining me. Nice to have you back in the comic book room. Knock wood, this recording doesn't get fucked up in a new and interesting way. Mm-hmm. But it was lo- lovely to have you back. And uh, I had fun talking with you about this comic that uh, I didn't have a f- ton of fun reading. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically, can you imagine such a thing, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We've gotten some really, really lovely cards and letters from people, and I really appreciate that. I feel like a rhinestone cowboy, Corey. Yeah, and cards and letters from people I don't even know. Oh, I see what you did. Yeah. But, I, you know, I feel like I do know you guys, because you're great. Yeah. Yeah. No, for real. I, I, I read some of these that came in, too, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's heartwarming to know that people are paying attention and getting something out of this thing that we put so much effort into, especially when, I don't know, times are tough. Yeah. Good yeah. news is sparse, so the idea that somebody's getting a chuckle here and there is is heartwarming yeah it really does mean a lot to me and i i really appreciate hearing that the show means something to you guys so thanks you can find us also on the socials media we're up there in various forms uh been kind of a light week for my interactivity up there there's been a lot going on but uh we're up there sometimes you can if nothing else vote on the twitter poll for battle of the band names we're also up on uh you know, the Facebook, the uh, Instagram sometimes a little bit, and uh, LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. Always accepting resumes. Mm-hmm. We're not hiring right now. We're, we've been on a hiring freeze for the past six years, but uh, you never know what's going to come up. I mean, who knows what the future will bring. And hey, if you can't find us online, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you doing in people's hearts this week? Oh man, I'm gonna follow your lead, and I'm gonna mull some cider, and then the inside of their heart's gonna smell nice. Yeah, we're, we've been enjoying some mulled cider as we've been recording. It's a nice time. It is festive, it, comforting. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of the the festive theme, I'm gonna be uh heading out into my overgrown side lawn and seeing if there's another Charlie Brown ass looking Christmas tree that I can harvest and uh, put up in your hearts the way that I have in my living room. It is a very goofy-looking, sad-ass Charlie Brown tree, and it kind of cracks me up every time I see it. And so, if I can bring that warmth into your heart as well, well, that's something I'm happy to do. Nice. Then it will smell like cider and balsam. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's cedar. Cedar and cider. Cedar and cider? Now, that's a buddy cop movie. That's a delicious candle scent, I bet. Oh, probably. Cedar and cider. Mm-hmm. Which one do you think Sylvester Stallone is going to play? Uh, who's opposite him? I feel like i got to know that before I can tell who's who. Peter Lorre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's going to be a uh, cider. Yeah, because he's kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. Good call. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. 
That is the Howard the Duck show that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. Uh, We're coming to the very end of our Howard the Duck coverage. We just hit our first issue that's not by Steve Gerber, which is weird. Not that the Gerber issues weren't weird, but different kind of weird. And there's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books and other podcasts that I've recorded with Corey, among other people, that are just up there for people who have donated to the show as a thank you for donating to the show. It's uh, great that so many of you have done that. It makes it possible for us to keep doing the show, and I really appreciate it. So, thanks. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, how would they go about doing that? Two main ways are leaving reviews and telling people about the show. Hmm, what's an example of a review that someone could leave? Uh, gosh, maybe I said this last time, but something like, these two moon-furred rhyme-sayers are tops. Did oh, I say that last time? Maybe. Who knows? So you could say that. Five stars. Yeah, sure. Please. Just because you said something doesn't mean you can't say it again. Did you leave us a review one time a while ago, but you don't remember? Try leaving it again. Maybe you're on a different account or something now. I don't know how that shit works. Yeah. Well, I guess just wherever you got your podcast. Probably yeah. the easiest place to go. Okay. But if you want to leave it somewhere else, you could write a letter. Yeah. Write a letter to Steve. See if you can make him cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't write a letter to a fictional character. That's probably not going to work out that well. But write a letter to, like, your friend from college. Write a letter to, uh... Senator. Your senator. Sure. Uh, he'll probably just say, whoa, I'd love to help you, son, but you're too young to vote. And you could be like, well, that's not true. I am of voting age, and that's very condescending. And, uh... You know what? Maybe the reason there's no cure for the summertime blues is because you haven't gotten off your fat duff and given it funding, Mr. Senator. You don't have to call us duff fat. I'm sorry, that's uh, as metaphorically fat. Sure, yeah. As you don't need to body shame your senator. No. But it would be nice if they would work on a cure for the summertime blues. Yeah, yeah, copy Ant Whistle on that one. I mean, that was a cover that they did. It was it? originally a Who song. Oh, that's right, it was like an old-timey song. Yeah. Like from the 50s, right? Like from the 50s, it wasn't by the Big Bopper, but it had that kind of section in it where it's like, Hello, baby. <laughs> that's a pretty good Big Bopper. Thank you. I mean, that, That's how I read the, the senator part. Call my congressman. He said, Hello, baby. <laughs> that would be unsettling. Yeah, so don't call <laughs> your senator or your congressperson write him a letter yeah write him a letter or an email yeah or whatever it, it'd be weird if they wrote back and they wrote back hello baby yeah but it would be less i would be less good because you couldn't hear it in the big bopper voice i would just say though if that does happen take a picture of it and post it online yeah bring and, your senator down also don't engage directly yeah yeah just walk away from that situation mm-hmm. that senator's no good yeah and if that does happen i'm sorry yeah, you know, it seemed like a reasonable thing for us to suggest you guys do, but <laughs> I it, think it's it a very reasonable suggestion that people write their senator about it's this show. Gotten out of hand. Yeah, not on our part. No, it just you know that's what happens, and it's stuck in the quagmire of local politics, national politics. Yeah, even yeah, it's just gone too far. It has, but thank you guys so much. For we really appreciate you trying to write to your senator. And I'm sorry that he talked to you that way. That's inappropriate. It's so creepy. It's unforgivable. It really is. (sighs) Fucking politicians, man. Am I right? Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) 
beep. I can't do it. That accent work is too advanced for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. It's like William Shatner. It's one of the most difficult impressions to do. I know, me. I know. I can only do the Farina. Hey, hey, Peter Lorre. <laughs> I'm programmed to speak over like 250 million or whatever languages, all right? Go Bears. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a protocol droid, okay? Is this moron number one? Put moron number two on the phone. Yeah, Jimmy, he's uh, right here. Hold on. I thought you told me this guy was going to be on the plane. That's the information we got. I'm going to tell you something. I want this guy taken out, and I want him taken out fast. You and that other dummy better start getting more personally involved in your work, or I'm going to stab you through the heart with a fucking pencil. Do you understand me?